I've said to you all before that we learn through instruction and imitation. I feel like every time we've been in a chapter of Proverbs together, you've heard me refer to that pair of eyes. We learn through instruction and imitation. We need to be guided and exhorted by the Word of God, and yet that is accompanied in the way the Lord works in our lives through examples and relationships that shape us, influence us. Instruction and imitation. If you prefer a different vowel, here's an E. Maybe we could think of, we learn through exhortation and example. Either way, we must keep in mind that strategic relationships is a means of God's grace in our lives to mature us. And that's because we are not static people. We are formable. We're malleable. Things affect us. Circumstances affect us. Relationships influence us. Our companions will have a powerful effect on the kind of people we become. In one sense, friendship is a positive and vital reality in the world. We don't deny it. The Bible speaks of friendship in the Old and the New Testaments. Outside the Bible, ancient Christian thinkers have reflected on its value. In the 4th century AD, Augustine said, There are two essentials in this world, life and friendship. And both must be prized highly and not undervalued. Gregory of Nazianza said, if somebody were to ask me what's the best thing in life, he would say, friends. These thinkers who love the Bible and love Christ and wanted to see people grow up in Christ, they knew the vital earthly gift that friends play in our lives. So yes, on the one hand, friendship is a positive and vital reality in the world. On the other hand, there are temptations of sin and wickedness that can also make friendship a negative force in our lives, even a detrimental factor. Not just in our lives, maybe the lives of others we know. We have seen that companions that they have chosen have brought incredible sorrow. You don't get far into Proverbs as a book before this becomes really clear that this is on the mind of the writer. How early? Proverbs 1. In Proverbs 1, verses 8 and following, the the father is saying to his son, let's imagine a scenario where others come alongside and they say, join me in this wickedness. In Proverbs 1, the reader is warned about the danger of accompanying people into their Wickedness and evil, leading to ruin. He warns about the danger of people saying, join us in this, come with us, here's what we'll get, this will be what we divide, and here will be our gain. Thinking more about the positive and vital role of friendships in our lives, we've seen psychologists demonstrate in study after study the value in our humanity of healthy friendships. Healthy friendships increase your mental and emotional well-being. These relationships can foster greater confidence in life, perseverance in life. These relationships can boost creativity. They can combat different challenges like feeling aimless in life or struggles with anxiety and depression. Friendships can allow you to share your burdens with others and for them to share their burdens with you. They give you a sense of belonging, sense of companionship. Healthy friendships enrich your life. That doesn't surprise us. The Bible teaches this. Plenty of research outside the Bible confirm what the Bible teaches. So we are not surprised that the writer of Solomon, to help us live wisely, 
To live skillfully in the world God has made points to the need of thinking on what our companions mean, how they influence us. We want to think about Proverbs 13 with this subject. And in verse 20 and in verse 21, the writer first of all gives us in verse 20 the effect of the company we keep. There is an effect, not neutral, not indifferent, but an effect of the company you keep. He says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. I grew up hearing about this verse. It was one of these verses that I saw on a number of different art pieces and stickers from time to time. And I grew up um, in the nursery in a Southern Baptist church. And so there was, there was from the beginning of my Southern Baptist heritage, a, a pointing to the wisdom of Proverbs that included this kind of statement. Among the verses throughout the 31 chapters of Proverbs, this is one of the most commonly known. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Whoever, that's very general, isn't it? This is true for men and for women. It's true for old and for young. Whoever. So if you're thinking that this proverb applies to someone other than you, hold on. Whoever includes you. Now, it includes everybody. But whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. No one is unshaped by other people. There are voices and examples in our lives that have affected us and that will affect us. Think about the language walks with. That's what the writer wants to say more generally here about whoever. Whoever walks with. It's imagery of a journey, taking a walk with someone. And I spent some time thinking about this this week, reflecting on this imagery of walking with. You know, if you're walking with someone, your steps are going where their steps are going. I don't think you could say you're walking with them if your steps weren't. You can't walk with someone when you're going one way and they're going another way. There is a synchronizing of direction. Walks with. And I, I think not only of direction... You know, if you went to take a jog in the park and there were other people there, I don't know if it would be quite accurate for you to say, yeah, I was walking with someone today or jogging along with them. I mean, they were way up there or someone was way back there. You might say if you went with someone who started to pass you up, hey, wait a second, I thought we were going to walk together. So I think not only of direction, but of pace. I think of both direction and pace that the direction is the same, and I'm seeking to match the pace of someone else. I'm walking with them. Whoever walks with the wise. This means the pace and direction is something shared. Otherwise, it's not very likely you would say you're walking with them. I think in a practical sense, this could mean you're talking often with a person, spending time together with a person, enjoying shared interests, You're granted deeper access to their life, and they're granted deeper access to yours. You're matching direction and pace over time. And what he says is, whoever walks with the wise. The contrast is coming later in the verse. The companion of fools is going to be introduced. So he's very concerned with who you're matching pace and direction with. And the reason he wants you to think about being a companion of the wise or the fool is because you're affected by that. You either become wise or you will suffer harm. 
the contrasting categories of wise and fool, they come again here in verse 20. They're all over the book of Proverbs. Here again, they rear their heads. Wisdom and foolishness are tied to relationships that we have. Whoever walks with the wise. Now that doesn't mean walking with the wise necessarily involves them giving you some sort of formal instruction, though that could be the case. Walks with has a manner of speaking of going through life with and being influenced by such that this writer says, wisdom and foolishness are not simply taught, but also caught. And what he means there is, our growth is affected by the relationships that rub off on us informally. Not always in a gathered informal setting, similar to what we have here today. Our daily lives, the way our paced life works with others, involves a number of informal influences. But that doesn't mean they're not effective. It doesn't mean they're not influential. The writer says it is, in fact, the case that they are. And you might say, well, okay, if this person walks with the wise and becomes wise, or if this person is a companion of fools and will suffer harm, are the wise and the fool that they're companions with, are those other people to blame for how this ends up? Well, I don't think that would be quite right in reading this verse. I don't think that's a good implication from it. I don't think this verse is at all removing personal responsibility. This, this uh, proverb does not remove personal responsibility for the decisions that an individual makes. But it does recognize that who we become is in part shaped by who we're with. Who we become is in part shaped by who we're with. There is a saying, this is not from Solomon, but I think it summarizes the point. Your friends are your future. Have you ever heard this saying before? Your friends are your future. Maybe you heard a different rendition of it, but it's making the same, same point. It's a strong statement. Maybe you could say it's even overstated. So many other factors and, and, and a lack of nuance that we, might, that we might say is missing. Okay, well, don't miss the point, though. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. A companion of fools will suffer harm. There's a sense in which you can look at those currently influencing you and have a, sen a sense of your future. Now, you don't know your future, not in any kind of great detail, so I'm not arguing that at all. But I am saying, if you want to know some aspect of your future, you should look at your present friends. And you'll have some idea of those people who are shaping your decisions and your priorities. So if I have a question of, you know, what is my future going to entail in terms of what I'm prioritizing and what decisions I want to make? Well, who's currently influencing me, influencing my decisions and priorities? That's, that's going to carve a path. That's going to chart a course. Author Drew Hunter in his book Made for Friendship says, Our friends influence the moral direction of our lives. And the closer the friend, the stronger the influence. Oh, haven't we all observed this? This is true. This is such a spot-on observation about the way life works. Our friends influence the moral direction of our lives. And the closer the friend, the stronger the influence. Does this absolve us of moral responsibility? No. But it is to recognize that we are affected by those we befriend and who befriend us. It is important that he doesn't just say, hey, you should befriend the wise. Or say, you know, be careful of becoming a companion of fools. 
Proverbs over and over again will draw attention to results and lead you to then ponder, do I want where this is going? And in verse 20, the results are highlighted to help us think more precisely. Becoming wise or suffering harm. Those are the, those are the results. And we should think about that. Which of these results for your life and for your future do you want? Do you want to grow in wisdom or do you want to be a fool and plunge further down the path of disaster and ruin and harm? Now, for the clear thinking individual, the answer is obvious. We should long to be wise. Because to grow wise is to have that wisdom affect all the areas of your life. To refuse wisdom and to embrace folly is to have folly affect every area of your life. So the the stakes here are quite high because the influence and trickle-down effect of wisdom and foolishness is such that its effect is pervasive in life. So the results, becoming wise or suffering harm, the answer ought to be obvious if we're thinking rightly and thinking clearly about it. Growing in wisdom doesn't happen by hoping for it. Growing in wisdom doesn't happen by wishing for it, talking about it, dreaming about it. Growing in wisdom comes by heeding the instruction of God's word and growing close with companions who fear the Lord. That takes a manner of deliberation, doesn't it? Because you can't be friends with everybody. And you can't prioritize everything. And you can't be everywhere. You're going to have to make decisions. You're going to have to decide this and not that. This person and not this one. This takes a manner of forethought and planning about your life, but that's exactly what the prudent will do. That's what the prudent will do. The prudent are those who don't live life by fear. The prudent are those who live life seeking to give thought to the next steps they're taking. They don't want to live rashly, thoughtlessly. They want to live prudently, wisely, with discretion. The one who walks with the wise, whoever walks with the wise, becomes wise. And wisdom is not about street smarts here or just being clever in life. We've drawn our attention over and over again to the context of when wisdom occurs as a word. It's in the book of Proverbs, which is framed by the idea of fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge in chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in chapter 9, which means that wisdom and knowledge needed for Christian living, it requires a reverence and honor of God from the heart. So growing in wisdom requires us to attend to the state of our heart, which Proverbs over and over again points to. What am I orienting my heart toward? What am I pursuing? but also with the question with this verse this morning, who am I pursuing it with? Because whoever walks with the wise grows wise, becomes wise. You will spend time doing what's important to you. So the question is whether growing in wisdom is important to you. And that will be demonstrable. It will be something that could be measured or shown by the way you spend your time and who you spend it with. One way we should look at verse 20 in light of our lives, is to ask ourselves, what is the direction of my life in terms of the decisions and goals that I am making? Seeking to fear the Lord, glorify Christ, or something else that I think is somehow more important? And who am I pursuing this walk with? Am I walking with the wise? What faces and names come to mind? 
Now, in the second part of this verse, we're told about somebody who would be a companion of fools, and that means they're matching their pace and direction with those who live against the Lord. Now, one of the reasons they might do this is in verse 19. We saw last week that the end of verse 19 says, to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. They don't want to turn away from evil. They think repentance is a crazy idea. It's, it's an abomination. The idea of turning away from evil. In other words, they call evil good and good evil. The idea of turning away from evil ought to be something desirable and good. They think it's an abomination. They want to stick with evil. And it's more difficult to turn from evil when you are companions with those committed to evil. So if you look at verse 19 about the fool thinks it's an abomination to turn from evil, one reason that might be the case is in verse 20, he's a companion of evildoers. The fool rejects biblical instruction and exhortation. And part of what the fool needs to do is not only to repent, but to rethink the relationships that have been influencing him. Yes, indeed, the straining and severing of human relationships can be very hard. Especially if you're seeking to pursue Christ and they look at you with a blank stare like, what are you trying to do now? Let's go back, you know, come with us and let's go back to doing what we're doing. The reason harm will come, it tells us in verse 20, companion of fools will suffer harm. The reason it will come, the reason this is a promise you can count on is because not all of our decisions are morally neutral. We're going to face time and time again opportunities to do what is right and what is wrong. Opportunities to honor the Lord or dishonor the Lord. You're going to face forks in the road to live in honesty and integrity or deception and darkness. And the fool will suffer harm. I don't think that first and foremost means spiritual condemnation, though it doesn't exclude it. And though the life of the fool does wind down the path toward it, it first of all means you're sowing seeds of folly and rebellion that will be reaped with present temporal earthly griefs and sorrows. The fool should not be surprised that griefs and sorrows come upon him or her because of the decisions he or she has made. One of the reasons harm will come to the fool is because what verse 21 says is true. Disaster pursues sinners. So why is it that the fool in verse 20 and being a companion of fools will suffer harm? Because disaster is at the heels of the rebel. So harm comes upon them because disaster is in their wake. Now we have to get something clear right up front about verse 21. This word sinners here is being used very specifically. I mean, we're all sinners. The verse is not denying that. But the word sinners here is being used to refer to the sinners who are the unrighteous. They're among the wicked. And we know this because the second half of the verse is a contrast. The righteous. Well, the righteous are not the sinless. They are those who fear the Lord, turn to the Lord, turn from abomination and evil. They seek to honor and glorify Christ. So here in verse 21, the first, the use of the word sinners is very specific. It's referring to the wicked. So you can't look at verse 21 and say, well, disaster is pursuing me because I'm a sinner. You have to think more specifically about rebelling against the Lord. These are those who are committed to their sin. Their companions are fools and they refuse biblical instruction. To turn from evil is an abomination to them. 
Disaster pursues them. Pursues them? Well, I thought they were pursuing sin. Well, they are. Here's the irony. In the pursuit of sin, they find that the effects of sin and the reaping of sin is hot on their tail as well. They're not safe. This isn't a place of peace. This isn't a path of comfort. Disaster pursues sinners. If the sinner could glance in the rearview mirror, that's what they would see. If they could look out their windows to the side mirrors on the right and left, that's what they would note behind them coming up to their bumper. My mind thinks of the first Jurassic Park movie. There's this scene that Steven Spielberg records of the Tyrannosaurus Rex coming after the Jeep. And the characters are absolutely frightened, as you would understand, and the camera zooms in to see the pursuit, and the zoom in goes right to the side mirror of the Jeep so that you could look in the mirror and see what's behind you. And it's horrifying. There's the bounding carnivore ready to just devour them all. And then it says, because of the close-up of the filmmaking, objects in mirror are closer than they appear, which is even worse news for the characters in the Jeep. But friend, if you're turned away from the Lord... If your decisions are not seeking what would honor Christ, not only is disaster pursuing you, it is closer than it appears. So why test the Lord? Why fiddle with the bankrupt promises of sin any longer? Why give yourselves to it? Do you not know where this leads? In verse 21, not only is verse... 21 in the first part being used very specifically about rebels, we would need to also avoid a mistake. First mistake would be to say it's talking about everybody. These are the wicked sinners here, the unrighteous. The second error in verse 21 that we should avoid in interpreting it is that anytime we see difficulty and hardship that's come to someone's life, we should conclude it must be because of their sin. The logic of the verse works one way, but this isn't working two-way. And what I mean by this is, we have to avoid the error of Job's friends. Because Job's friends looked at someone who feared the Lord and who was righteous before God and who faced hardship and challenges and trials of life, and they concluded, well, the reason you must be going through what you're going through is because there is unrighteousness in your life. You've done something to grieve the Lord. You must have some rebellion, Job, and that's why disasters come. You can't look at the latter part of a situation like in a state of disaster or trials of someone's life and conclude earlier that there must have been something they're now reaping. But you can warn from the earlier to the latter that there is sin and rebellion that leads to disaster and folly that will reap ruin. So we want to avoid a particular error looking at disaster or hardship in someone's life and reading it backwards, but we must see the logic of the verse working in the direction it does work in and warn those who do not fear the Lord that disaster is pursuing them. We don't want to be like Job's friends, though. Even the righteous will face the trials and hardships of life. It's just that Job said, you give and you take away. Blessed Be the name of the Lord. 
We need to reflect on the second half of this verse, and then we'll draw some points of application more broadly. In the second half of this verse, the contrast is introduced with the righteous. It says in verse 21, but the righteous are rewarded with good. Just as the harm was probably primarily about the challenges and griefs of temporal earthly living, so also with the good that comes. In the ancient world, to be given a reward was someone who was a superior giving you something like being ushered into the king's presence, as one writer said. It's as if, this writer says, the rebel is hunted down and set apart for destruction, while the righteous man is ushered into the king's presence and conferred with rewards for faithful service. And it makes me think of Matthew 25, when Jesus calls his people to enter into the place of the righteous and calls and says the language, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think that there is an end time final aspect of this. But we should also recognize that living wisely in the world God has made, living skillfully, fearing the Lord, will lead to a life not only of integrity and faithfulness and uh, and, and seeking to cultivate wise and healthy relationships. Those very things become upon your life a blessing with good. You experience favor from the Lord and blessing from the Lord. The righteous experience the goodness of the Lord in their pursuit of wisdom. Though I certainly think passages like Matthew 25 with an end time aspect of things is where it all leads. Now let's think broadly for a moment. Verse 20 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. Disaster's coming on the heels of the fool. Our different relationships in life are impacted by how we think about verse 20. What should we imply that we can defend from other verses, but that are also reasonable applications of verses 20 and 21? I want to reflect on six aspects of our relationships. First, verses 20 and 21 mean don't date someone who isn't a Christian. One application and implication from this would be don't Date someone who isn't a Christian, which would further imply don't marry them. A Christian is someone who fears the Lord and loves Christ and believes the truth of God's word about what it says of Christ and seeks from their heart and in the decisions they make to bring glory to God, which means if you are walking with the wise versus becoming a companion of fools, those are binary categories of those who love and reverence the Lord and those who do not. And becoming united in heart and life and covenant with someone who does not love Christ is not the pursuit of Christian discipleship. Don't date someone who isn't a Christian. In fact, I think Puritan Thomas Brooks is right when he says, make those who have made Christ their chief companion, let them be your choicest companions. Those who have made Christ their chief companion, Let them be your choicest companions. Second, another application and implication here. These verses mean we should pursue our deepest friendships with people who know and love the Lord. Notice I said our deepest friendships. I don't think this verse means you can't be friends with a non-Christian. We're called to be hospitable and kind and generous and open-handed, loving, 
All of these aspects of our Christian life are something that should characterize our dealings with both the saved and the unsaved. But, but we must choose carefully those whose direction and pace we match in our lives. Our direction and pace in life. So this implication, just to reiterate it, we should pursue our deepest friendships with people who know and love the Lord and His Word and His church. And that's because we will be profoundly shaped by those with whom we share our souls and hearts. And if we keep the people of God at a distance and those who don't know God, we invite them into the deepest recesses of our hearts. We are not considering the wisdom of what J.C. Ryle says in his book, Thoughts for Young Men, though it could be applicable to more than just young men. Ryle says, there's no telling the harm that's done by associating with godless companions and friends. The devil has few better helps in ruining a man's soul. Ryle says, good education, early habits of morality, sermons, books, good homes, letters from your parents, all of these things the devil knows will avail you little if you cling to ungodly companions. So Ryle says, Choose friends who will benefit your soul. That's good advice, isn't it? My goodness. Choose friends who will benefit your soul, friends whom you can really respect. He says, friends whom you would like to have near you at your deathbed. Friends who love the Bible and are not afraid to talk to you about it. Friends that you're not ashamed of owning at the coming of Christ as your friends. This wisdom on friendship is all in the effort to unpack this second application, pursuing our deepest friendships with those who know and love the Lord and his people. Third, I think the implication and application of these verses also impacts church membership. You didn't know verses 20 and 21 had anything to do with church membership. I'm going to show you how it does. Here at Cosmosdale, we believe that church membership is the rightful biblical practice to pull themes together from the Word of God like truths that we have been joined to a body of Christ in our union with the Savior, and that those in the New Testament who professed faith and were baptized were added to the number and life of their local churches, and they were shepherded by, flock, by uh, overseers as the flock of God. They served the churches with their gifts and edified it through their service. In other words, Joining together with a church is another way of saying, I want to walk with the wise. I want to be companions with and unite souls and hearts with those who love the Lord. And so one of the natural implications of verses 20 and 21 is, then I want to connect deeply with a local church. Fourth, this verse helps us think about discipleship. The one or whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. And there might, you might sense in your life coming across someone in a relationship where you think, I want to grow and think the way they're thinking about life in this particular way. I want to grow in wisdom just as they've grown in wisdom. And you look to them as an example or a kind of mentor. Our relationships need this. Connections and relationships in our lives with people who are older than us people who are younger than us, people who are in the same stage in life that we're in, and people who are in completely different stages in life. Our lives need to be interconnected in this way with whom the Lord has given us providentially so that we can see all the different ways we grow together. We need to be taught, and we need to be encouraged, and we need to be helped, and we need it in formal senses, and we need it 
in informal senses. Sometimes you just need to hang out with people and talk, eat meals or go to coffee, watch a movie or enjoy um, a time of formal hangouts like so many in this uh, church do. We need both formal and informal contexts of discipleship. So fourthly, this verse helps us think about discipleship. Growing with the wise versus becoming a companion of fools, Lord help us. Fifth, this verse helps us think about parenting. It helps us think about parenting because our children will want friends. And so as parents, we must exercise discernment on the relationships our children want to cultivate. The father writing Proverbs here, Solomon, knows and sees further down the road than his child that he is rearing and teaching this to. And sometimes a child might look in their ignorance and in their confusion, well, why can't I have these relationships or these friendships? So fifthly here, this verse helps us think about parenting. Because children may want to cultivate relationships that you know will bring harm and ruin if pursued. Uh, Some warning signs might include the following things. I'll give you four. Does the friend lead your child into doing what is wrong? Number two, does the friend speak disrespectfully about his or her parents or disrespectfully to you? These might be warning signs. Thirdly, does the friend demean and mock those who are weaker and helpless in some way? Fourthly, have you noticed a change in your child's attitude or temperament since this friend has entered your child's life? All of these might be warning signs that in the effort to discern what would be best for the soul of your child, relationships would need to be cultivated or relationships that would need to be ended. And then lastly, this verse points us to the truth of Christ as our faithful and wise friend. What a friend we have in Jesus, we sing. All our sins and griefs to bear. When we think of walking with the wise, something greater than Solomon is here, Jesus announced to the people in his midst. When we think of following Jesus as disciples follow their master, we are matching pace with and the direction of the one who leads us into life everlasting. Our goal is not just to pursue relationships with those who know the Lord, but to pursue the Lord. In other words, we come to understand that in the gospel, we find Jesus to be the friend of sinners. This is great news. Author Jared Wilson says, All my hope is bound up in this, that the God of heaven is a friend of sinners. Because if that's not true, why on earth are we here this morning? We gather because the scripture announces to a broken world that the God of heaven is a friend of sinners. And if they will come to him, he will save them. The good news of the gospel is that God befriends sinners. He takes those who in their foolishness are full on plunging into rebellion and ruin and his grace and precious blood interposes in their helpless estate and he brings them to himself, his reconciling mercy. His powerful Holy Spirit brings new life where there was death. 
where companion of fools became the influential thing in someone's life, the Lord through his word and through his people so mercifully aligns uh, your steps in life to where you see with greater clarity the glory and beauty of what is wise and the horror of sin and rebellion. The good news of the gospel is that God befriends sinners. I like the way Martin Luther put it. Luther said God's friendship is more precious than the whole world. So if you take everything in the world and you put it on one end of the scale, the friendship that we know with God in Christ Jesus is more precious than the whole world. Because in Christ, our path looks different. Condemnation is not our future. And spiritual disaster is not on the heels of our feet. Instead, for those that are in Christ Jesus, we are not condemned, Romans 8.1 tells us. The righteous are not pursued by disaster. And they will not go into condemnation. Notice in verse 21, it tells us what's behind the sinner. Disaster. And it tells us what's in front of the righteous. What God will allot as our good. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we are barreling gladly, day by day, into God's surpassing grace. That is our future. Mercy, grace, peace, joy in Christ. Not only is that our future, condemnation will not overtake us from behind. Disaster does not pursue us. What is it that is at our feet? Oh, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray.